Thanks for tuning in to the Glenridge Church message. Our mission is to love God, love people, and live to change the world. If we can help you in any way at all, feel free to reach out to us on hello at glenridge.org.za. Hey guys, I want you to think about every argument, every dispute, every disagreement you've ever had. I can almost guarantee that I know what the cause of each of those arguments was about. How's that possible? Because 99 times out of 100, the dispute or argument or fight arises out of an unmet expectation. You expected A and got B, or equally likely, somebody expected A from you and got B. This happens all the time. Think of arguments that you have with your spouse. And, and often, during the course of those arguments, you'll be fighting about one issue, or arguing about one issue, and suddenly there are a whole bunch of other issues that are on the table, and you say, hey, where did these come from? They're all important, but, but why have these never been addressed before? And partly that's because we are really, really bad at expressing what our expectations are. We expect other people to know what they are. In fact, sometimes we're not even aware of what our own expectations are until they're not met. I remember um, chatting to a, a young friend of mine from, from Glenridge who was really excited. He was about to get married. And uh, he's saying, oh, I can't wait. It's going to be amazing getting married in three weeks. And I said to him, well, have you, have you discussed expectations? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, I want you to do this. I want you to take a sheet of paper, give your fiance a sheet of paper, and write down the following headings under, under the, the title of expectations, the following headings, time, money, sex, children, work. Write those headings down. And then under each of those, write down in more detail things like, under time, what are we going to spend the weekends doing? What are we going to do when it comes to holidays? Do we go to your parents' place? Do we go to our parents, your, my parents' place? Do we go somewhere else? What does that look like? If we have children, how many are we going to have? If, if we have children, is the expectation that um, the, your fiancé is going to carry on working? Write down the answer to each of those and get your fiancé, without discussing it with you, to write down each of her expectations. And he said to me, oh, come on, Raymond. We know each other. We love each other. It'll be fine. I said, that's very sweet. Try it. A couple of weeks later, he'd been married for a little while, and um, I saw him. I hadn't seen him in between. And he came running over and gave me a big hug and said, Raymond, that's the best advice anybody's ever given me. And that's because their expectations were wildly different. And they had no idea. They simply assumed that they were on the same page. Now, if that's tricky when it comes to human expectations of one another, and, and, and those things can be tricky. I mean, legal contracts are no more than a written record of expectations between two parties and the consequences of not meeting them. The laws of the land are, are really just a written record of the expectations of the state from its citizens. The state doesn't expect it's citizens to murder one another. If you murder somebody, then you go to prison, or should. And the reason that that's in law, and has been uh, as long as humans have been around, is because it's really important to know what is expected of you. 
But what about our expectations of God? And when God doesn't meet our expectations and life doesn't make sense, our immediate temptation is to ask this question, is God really good? That's the heart of the question that was asked by uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. When he said to Eve, has God really said that you can't eat of the fruit of this tree? And when he went on to say, well, God doesn't want you to realize that, that you would understand the difference between good and bad, and you would become like one of the gods. The heart of that interaction was the serpent saying, is God really good? If the mind is the battlefield for the hearts of men and women, then the territory that we're fighting over is to settle the answer to that question, is God really good? And the answer is yes, God is really good, whatever the circumstances. I'd like to explore the goodness of God in unexpected places in the book of Ruth. This book is an absolute treasure trove of the goodness of God, and, and we don't have the time or space to go through all of that in detail. So I'm going to pick up a couple of elements and have a look at them and um, see what we can learn from it. On the surface, the story looks like a sweet romance, a Middle Eastern um, version of a Hallmark Christmas movie where a couple leave the promised land of Israel during a famine, go to a neighboring land, um, the husband dies, um, the, the sons marry local ladies, the, hus the, the sons die, the, um, the mother and the, the two daughters-in-law um, cry and weep uh, about their circumstances and, and after a dramatic scene, um, the mother and one of the daughters-in-law heads back to Israel and there um, uh, a relative of, of the mother, uh, Naomi's relative, is, comes to the rescue and marries the daughter-in-law and they live the um, biblical equivalent of happily ever after. That's, that's the story at a surface level. But there is much more to the story. And we're going to look at some of the detail in, in the introduction to the book of Ruth and see what we can find. In order to, I think, get the most out of it, we need to put ourselves in the sandals, as it were, of people who lived in Israel at the time of Ruth and Naomi. I'm going to pick it up from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to read the whole text, and then we'll go back and look at specific lines in it. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, say that five times fast. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there ten years, and both Melon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may yet become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, <coughs> my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with you, with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, let's start in verse 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The time of judges was a time in the history of Israel which was absolutely chaotic. It was the time immediately after the death of uh, Joshua. Joshua was Moses' second in command. He had brought the people into the promised land and had ruled over them. But when Joshua died, the people returned to the worship of Baal, and because of the apostasy of the, the nation of Israel, the enemies of Israel overran them. It was a terrible time, a time of uh, political strife, of, of religious backsliding, it was just an awful time in the history of Israel. And in the midst of this, God appointed judges to rule over Israel. Some good judges and some really, really bad judges. What's interesting about it is that, that Joshua is, um, in Hebrew, Yeshua, the same name that Mary called Jesus. It means God is salvation or God saves. So we're dealing at a time where, where God has brought his people through Yeshua into the promised land and they have turned from God and there's calamity. Um, we could think of this as a type of a situation where we come to know Jesus, come to know Christ, but we turn away and fall back into old ways. It's, 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 it's an image in real terms of something that could happen to any of us. What's also interesting about the book of Judges is that um, at the end, near the end of the book of Judges, we see that the people of Israel call 
um, for the appointment of a king over them. The system under the book of Judges was that God appointed judges, <coughs> but God was their king. And the people of Israel said, no, no, we want to be like the other nations. We, wanted to, we want to have kings who will go before us in battle and will fight our battles for us. And, and God was affronted by this. We see this in, in, in subsequent books, in interactions with, with Samuel, which ultimately led to the disastrous appointment of Saul as king, who was removed, and then later um, David was appointed as king of Israel. So it's in this context, Israel in apostasy, that Naomi and her husband leave the promised land because the going went, became hard and went to the land of Moab. Moab is named after the son of Lot, who was born from an incestuous situation with his daughter, with Lot's daughter, as a result of deception. Um, Lot, you will remember, fled from Sodom and Gomorrah when God was raining brimstone and fire in judgment upon those two cities of wickedness. So for, for Elimelech and Naomi to be going from the promised land to a land that is associated with God's judgment and wrath um, and, and deception and incest is not a good picture. The original readers of this story would have, would have anticipated that, that this is not going to go well. To make it worse, um, the, the sons of Naomi and Elimelech go on to marry Moabite women, which was expressly forbidden in the law. Um, picking up from verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. Elimelech means God is king. Cool name. Um, it's, it's also appropriate having regard to the context of the time in which they lived, where the judges ruled over Israel, but God ruled over the judges. So God was the king. So we have um, the setup of the generation where, where God is king in Elimelech, Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, Things look good from a naming perspective. At the time that Elimelech and Naomi were named by their parents, things were clearly rosy. They, Naomi and Elimelech, then named their own two sons, Marlon and Chilion. Marlon means sick, and Chilion means pining. Those aren't positive names. It's a bit like um, somebody in, in our times naming their child uh, COVID or pandemic or hashtag 2020 sucks. It's the equivalent. So it seems to me, reading this text, that perhaps at the time that, that Elimelech and Naomi named their children, they were not in the headspace that God is good. It goes on to say, there were Ephrathites, from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem is known as the city of David. It means house of bread. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, is described in the Gospels as the bread who came from heaven, which was greater than the manna which Moses supplied. Um, in, in recent living memory, um, at the time that this story was written, um, in the wilderness, in the desert. So immediately, as, as we read, 
that Elimelech, God is king, comes from Bethlehem, the house of bread, our association should immediately be, this is David. But more than that, just, just further down the line, this is going to be where ultimately Jesus, the king of all, is born. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The law prohibited Israelites from taking foreign wives because God knew that if they did so, they would follow foreign gods. When these sons took Moabite wives, they broke the law. The hearers of this original story would have immediately anticipated that this would lead to disaster. They would be expecting a moral story where the, the consequences of, of marrying outside of the faith, of marrying um, a Moabites, would lead only to disaster. But God has a way of, of redeeming even our bad decisions, even, even those decisions which don't line up with his perfect purposes, and weaving them into the, to the magnificent tapestry um, of destiny for, for our lives. As we will see, Ruth becomes a first fruit of the Gentiles, participating in the enlarged kingdom of God in Jesus. Um, Orpah, incidentally, um, Oprah Winfrey was named after Orpah. It's just that there was a misspelling when her name was registered after birth, and um, it stuck. We could well have been watching the Orpah Winfrey show, but I digress. It was disastrous that Naomi le was left with no sons to look after her or her, her daughters-in-law, the widows. This was the time when there was no social grant system, there were no pensions. They faced starvation. So Naomi decided to return to the promised land and tells her daughter to go back to their families and their gods. There is snot and trana everywhere. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What Naomi says here is kind of shocking. She says to Orpah and to Ruth that they should return to their families and their gods. There is a complete no confidence in her own God. She is effectively saying that her experience has taught her that God is not good and that these daughters of her would be better off with their own false gods. That's appalling. But Ruth will have none of it. Ruth, the outsider, the one from a nation that doesn't believe in God, or certainly in the God of Israel, 
says, whatever the circumstances, she would rather die than not follow the God of Israel. The story doesn't tell us, but I, I do wonder how she came to faith. It's not like this family was a shining example of faith in action. So, so how did she come to know about, about Yahweh? Was it, was it the Passover that they celebrated? Was it, was it in, in, in the Shabbat? What was it that caused her to see, actually God is here and God is real, and this is a God worth worth dying for. I think there's a lesson in that. I think sometimes we, we hold back or draw back from, from reaching out to the love of God because we fall and fail so often. But, but people are desperate for the truth. People are absolutely desperate for encounters with a living God. And even in our brokenness and even in our failures and, and flaws and and incompleteness at times, the love of God will reach out and reach people. We've got to be ready to do that and, um, and willing to see God demonstrate his love and his kindness to those who don't know him. It goes on to say from verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, again Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. Naomi says that she went away full and was brought back empty. But is that accurate? We, we read that at the time that she departed from the land, there was a famine. She called her sons sick and pining. None of that is a picture of going away full. See, memory is an interesting thing. When we remember an event, what we remember is our most recent memory of that event. We don't remember the event itself. And the more we think about that as time passes, it's like taking a photocopy and photocopying that photocopy and photocopying that photocopy. And eventually, the, the ultimate photocopy looks very little like the original. In fact, it's worse than that because uh, memory is a product of our thinking. So we insert, or our minds insert, our own biases, our lenses, our fears, our insecurities um, into those memories and, and shape it and shift it. Memory is elastic. It's not pristine. So here we see that Naomi falls into the trap of, of thinking that the past was the good old days. Actually, no, it wasn't. In fact, we all do this. We all somehow think that, that the past was better. And in some respects, maybe it was. But in other respects, it wasn't. Life is difficult, and it has challenges. I read somebody um, wrote the other day, how do we know when we're living in the good old days? The truth is that nobody ever has. Um, our, our memories are not accurate. And, and far from the rosy picture that Naomi painted in her own mind um, of what the past was like. The past was hard. Her present was hard too. And, and that's simply a reality. 
The question is, in those circumstances, both past and present, and even into the future, is God good? Naomi judged her circumstances based on the rosy picture, as I've mentioned, of how things used to be, which was inaccurate, and her rather depressing picture of what the circumstances were at the moment that she spoke these words, that, that the God, God had dealt with her bitterly and testified against her. However, as the story unfolds, as Ruth marries Boaz, as, um, as God restores Naomi's property to her, and, and there's um, not only a physical restoration, but a supernatural intervention where Ruth becomes part of the lineage of Jesus, part of the lineage of David, one of the, one of the heroes of the faith, spoken of even now, I'm preaching about this, thousands of years after, the, after she lived. Naomi made the mistake of judging the story before it had come to its conclusion. We have the benefit of, an, of a historical perspective, looking back and saying, ah, see how, how God weaved his purposes, even with that calamity, weaved his purposes in and, and brought great good out of great distress. We too can make that mistake. We can judge the goodness of God in our current circumstances. When we face difficulty, when we face hardship, when, when, um, when somebody dies of COVID, even though we've prayed with faith and they weren't healed, or, or a business shuts down and we're left unemployed, or, or our main client goes to someone else and we face financial hardship, all of those things are real. The question we have to answer in our hearts is in those difficulties, is God really good? And am I going to trust him until the end of the story? Or am I going to imagine that the past was always rosy and the present is so disastrous that we're better off with other gods? Romans 8 verse 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. <coughs> and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. And I think that's mostly because we haven't reached the end of the story yet. We're still being conformed into the image of his son. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. God is always good. God bless all of you. Cheers.